It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Kubrick's Universe Podcast. We'd like to introduce a new 13-part series coming from the mind of our very own Mark Lentz. The series is called Thicatria Kubrick, which is in the format of a roundtable discussion hosted by Mark Lentz, moderated by James Robert Sherman and populated by members of the SCAS Academy. Now, the SCAS Academy do regular online meetups every Saturday and they chat Kubrick. This is the first of a 13-week series in which each of Kubrick's feature films will be discussed in chronological order, starting with Fear and Desire. This is Thicatria Kubrick. Fear and Desire is a 1952 American independent film marking Stanley Kubrick's directorial debut. The film opens with an off-screen narration by David Allen. There is war in this forest. Not a war that has been fought, or one that will be, but any war. And the enemies who struggle here do not exist unless we call them into being. This forest then, and all that happens now, is outside history. Only the unchanging shapes of fear and doubt and death are from our world. These soldiers that you see keep our language and our time, but have no other country but the mind. This sets the stage for a story set during an unspecified war between two nations. Four soldiers find themselves stranded behind enemy lines following a plane crash. Their journey involves building a raft, encountering a general, and breaking into an enemy-held house. They also have an encounter with a young peasant girl, leading to a tragic turn of events. Now, before taking on Fear and Desire, Kubrick had, of course, worked as a Look Magazine photographer and directed two short documentaries, Day of the Fight and Flying Padre, in 1951. These experiences encouraged him to venture into narrative feature filmmaking, prompting him to leave his full-time job with Look. The screenplay was crafted by Howard Sackler, Kubrick's high school classmate. The film featured notable actors Virginia Leaf who later appeared in the cult classic, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Jan in the Pan? Anyone? Anyone? And Paul Mazursky, who, of course, would later gain recognition as a director in his own right. Funds for the film came primarily from Kubrick's family and friends, with support from his uncle, the owner of a profitable pharmacy. The production team comprised 15 individuals only, including actors, crew members, and Mexican laborers who assisted with equipment and transportation. After premiering at the Venice Film Festival as Shape of Fear, the film found its way to U.S. theaters through distributor Joseph Burstyn. 
Renamed Fear and Desire, it carried the tagline, Trapped, Four Desperate Men and a Strange Half-Animal Girl. Initial reviews, including an uncredited one from the New York Times, acknowledged the film's experimental nature, but noted its overall impact. Following its initial release, Fear and Desire went through a period of obscurity, with rumors even suggesting Kubrick's attempts to destroy it. Through Warner Brothers, Kubrick issued a statement that severely downplayed the film's value, and he called Fear and Desire, quote, a bumbling amateur film exercise, end quote. However, some copies of the film remained in private collections, and it later resurfaced during a retrospective screening at the 1993 Telluride Film Festival. Kino Video released a DVD and Blu-ray in 2012, and it was released again the following year by British company Eureka Entertainment as part of its Masters of Cinema line. A recent announcement by Kino Lorber stated that a longer version of Fear and Desire has just been discovered. It runs 70 minutes instead of its original 62, restored in 4K by Kino Lorber in collaboration with the United States Library of Congress. We now present to you this conversation, which was recorded on September 9th, 2023. Well, so let's start by going through everybody. I will call on people. And just give some thoughts about your current viewing compared to earlier viewings. Uh, just a few thoughts from everybody. And I'll just call you in the name you're on my screen. So, Brian, you go first. Well, this won't be as in-depth as Bob. Um, I think a uh, couple of things. Um, it And the, the, the timing of it doesn't work. But in the very beginning, in those opening scenes, I almost saw a Twilight Zone episode because Twilight Zone was famous for doing these things where they were in these anonymous places. Um, and given the timeline, this was made before that. But so it kind of echoed some of the better Twilight Zone pieces that I remember and liked. Um, that said, it's, to me, it's very uneven. Um, I, I kind of saw it as an interior monologue of these four distinct characters very early on war and their different, I don't want to say desires, because that's a pun, almost their motivations. So you had the guy who had kind of the sexual obsession. You had the guy, the the leader who's kind of challenged with leadership decisions. You had the guy, I mean, it's almost like four aspects of war, but very, very uneven. Um, and in terms of what psychologically that does to, does to people. Um, you know, with all the continuity errors, you know, if, if I saw one more shot of the two guys walking outside the German headquarters or whatever it was, <laughs> I mean, that guy, but he was to splice that in 10 times. Um, um, you know, um, it did have the first, I would say, to be fair, it had the first Kubrickian stare, although it was very early. And ironically, it's a woman, which never happens again in his, in his film <laughs> legacy. <laughs> um, uh, so that was mainly it. I mean, I just, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's interesting film angles and things of that nature. I'd have to look at other films at that time to see if how it was. But I, I think maybe why it caught some people's attention was 
you know, it wasn't so much an A to B to C story. It was almost more of an interior psychological monologue, which uh, with these four characters set in this anonymous place. And again, I'll go back to like a Twilight Zone episode. And um, and from that standpoint, I don't know how many other films are being done that at that time that were so abstract like that. Um, you know, it kind of became more in the 60s and 70s, I think. But I don't know how much in the 50s and 40s that was being done. Um, there's other people here who are probably better film historians than me. Um, so that was mainly it, I, you know, but it, it's very uneven in the character development. You know, the Paul Mazursky character is kind of goes totally off the charts. You know, the, the other guy, um, you know, who I guess just wants to kill, you know, and his, his thing about Mac, Mac, you know, and it, it's just uneven, but I kind of can see like the four thoughts and the four personalities and the four interior like desires or dr drivers that perhaps war psychologically impacts people. So and that's just my two cents. Thank you, Brian. And uh, yeah, well, in this first go round, let's just let the person talk. Uh, although, Bob, if you want any clarifications, you're allowed. So Mark McKay. Oh, right when you're taking a drink. <laughs> um, of water. Uh, uh, intrigued disappointed I, i'd seen it before a couple of times but not in a long time and this is the first time that in light of everything we've discussed and other things i've read and youtube clips where you see various iconic moments from other kubrick movies uh this was uh sort of painful you saw the prototype of kubrick's later techniques you saw most of it there but uh, he was very unsure of what he wanted to do. The acting was wooden. The character and scene blocking was terrible. Um, the dialogue was left a lot to be desired. I didn't know whether he was trying for a straight-up melodrama or some sort of allegory. Uh, the lighting at times was very interesting, very good. Took some time to figure that out particularly the sequence at the end, towards the end. Shot a lot of it day for night, so what you what looks like nighttime scenes is probably really shot during the day. Well, certainly was shot during the day. Um, I, I, a couple of the moments were cringeworthy, so full disclosure, I sort of buzzed right past those. Uh, for a minute or two, uh, particularly Paul Mazursky, who's a character I never thought was really well-developed. I thought the other people had some interesting angles, but I never completely got a handle on him. Um, it, just, it just wasn't clear. What I really felt was that Stanley was sending himself to the Stanley Kubrick film school. He was sending himself to film school to figure out how to uh, lock, set up a camera, light. You know, he was, he was winging it at times. How, how can I... If he only knew half then what he had learned in only three or four short years thereafter, it would have been a much better movie. Uh, but 
absolute kudos for a completely, completely miraculous transition from a substandard, what would be a standard movie for everybody else and is clearly substandard Kubrick, but in only three to five years between Killer's Kiss and Paths of Glory, you're talking about a, a quantum leap in just about every filmmaking technique that he could muster. Not only, of course, he had more money, but he was much more thoughtful about blocking and camera audacity and symbolism and metaphor and how to get a lot of out of, out of actors without even having them speak. No dialogue whatsoever. But in this movie, it uh, unfortunately was kind of a wash. But I do give a lot of credit for having the courage to go out there and do it in the first place. And some of the techniques were, I saw he was trying, but I saw that there wasn't any you know, money to do it better. And there were a couple of continuity breaks. Um, and, well, the girl was really pretty. I couldn't, I couldn't buy why she was tied up against the tree like that. It didn't seem to. That was a, an important plot point and or story point and sort of seemed a little lame, almost amateurish. But uh, you know, it's intriguing. It's a definitely an interesting experiment for Proto Kubrick. To that, thumbs up, kudos. Thank you, Mark. Wow, well said. So, Stanley, go ahead. Kudos to Bob Castle. Kudos to Brian and Mark, because I think the two people who just spoke spoke truth truthisms. Um, I kept thinking of the word. We all know that, uh, where Stanley went after this, and Killer's Kiss and the Killing, etc. So I kept thinking of the word primitive when I watched this. My wife was sitting next to me this morning while I watched it, and she said something like, this is not very good. And I said, this is where he was at the time. Mark just used the word courage. And I had read somewhere that Stanley and his his buds at the time thought of themselves as geniuses. So my my guess is they thought they were Superman and they could accomplish anything. So he's taking his success from Look Magazine and the little shorts that he did prior, and he's jumping into this as a next step thinking, well, I'm going to hit a home run. Well, we know in comparison, this was not a home run. Did it take courage? Of course it took courage. Um, who has hit a grand slam? Who has hit a home run or a grand slam? first time out of the box. I'm not sure. Would you tell me? You guys know more than I do about uh, about, about uh, this universe. But I kept thinking of the word primitive. The opening narrative uh, that you never see the hear the narrator. You, you hear the narrator, but you don't see him. I think we're getting a glimpse of Stanley's thoughts about the nature of man, which which, of course, comes up in every one of his successive uh, ventures. 
the music was very interesting to me. And, and David uh, may comment on that a little bit later. But I kept thinking of 80s TV shows. Brian brought up The Twilight Zone. Now, obviously, this was way before the 80s, but the music changed dramatically over time in his films. Interesting that the film was in color, yet there were a couple of shots that were kind of sepia, full-face sepia. I, again, uh, he was experimenting in this film, and we all know uh, the path that he took. Mark McKinnon uh, did a, a, a post on Facebook today about uh, the, the scene from 2001 where the ape is holding the bone in the air and says, Mark said something along the lines of there's this this scene will, you know, stand on its own forever and ever. And I agreed. But but the scene here where these where the soldiers, the four of these guys attacked that first cabin and then ate the food. And, you know, basically they were going after them for the food because they hadn't eaten. And that reminded me of the scene where one group of aggressive apes attacked the other group of more um, sedentary apes who were just minding their own BI business at the time. So that's that's where my mind went. Was he prepared? Did, did he did he keep that in mind to reappear later? That kind of uh, aggression. I thought that that the character Sidney was very interesting. He, of course, was the one who went mad, and he kept referring to the magician. And the term magic came up again at the end of the film. Sid, um, do you remember the, of course, you remember the dog who was one of the main characters in the film and the dog's name was, come on with it, Proteus. Proteus. Proteus, right. So I have heard the name Proteus before, but certainly didn't remember who it was. So I looked it up. So Proteus was a mythical god of, of rivers who changes easily with the flow of the water, who changes form, as it were. And that made me think of Stanley and his philosophy and, and human nature, which he dabbles in in this film. And then I jumped to some of the scenes in all of his other films, including the culmination in Eyes Wide Shut, where he gives us glimpses of what he called his final masterpiece. And we still think that it's unexplored because we know that something else is coming that theoretically could open it up even more. Everything changes. Um, Stanley keeps giving me hints about his belief in the concept of uncertainty. And I think that he scoffs at everybody else who takes a position of certainty about anything. I'm done for now. That is also excellent. Boy, I had no idea we'd be finding so much meat on this very slight movie. Good job. Uh, Mindy, what are your thoughts? Hello. Um, I, I love the uh, Twilight Zone. <laughs> I really got that feeling too. Um, I don't have as many deep thoughts as you guys. As I said, I just finished it for my second time about two minutes ago. So 
Uh, I'm still compiling. Um, what I did like about it is that it is, while it's not a perfect film by far, it's a great precursor of what we're going to see in the future, particularly in Paths of Glory. And so that's why I always find it fascinating to watch a first film because um, you'll, you'll, you'll see what they're going to grow into. And, and, and a lot of times because of money or opportunity, a first film is usually I'm going to throw everything at the wall because they don't necessarily, the director doesn't necessarily know if he or she is going to make another film. So um, I think he had a lot of ideas that were not necessarily fleshed out. But as his career goes on, he's going to definitely flush out a lot of those ideas. One of the things I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask, because I was confused, was the whole uh, plan at the end. I thought they were supposed to take the plane, but then they take the plane and then they're not in the plane. And I, I didn't know it was so if someone can explain that to me later. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to also uh, comment. Someone was saying that this seemed experimental for the 50s. You can see other films like this, but you're going to have to go to low budget B movies in the 40s and 50s. So I'm looking at, you know, a lot of your film noirs. There's something called Detour, which is a kind of subversive film noir from the 40s with Edward, Edward G. Ulmer. And uh, another one I can think of that I'm just not thinking of right now. Oh, Samuel Fuller uh, is a director who uh, did a lot of oddball stuff in the 50s uh, and 60s, etc. So that was my second. And I also wanted to say... For someone who said first movies out of the park, I would say, uh, and it's probably because she had a dad who helped her out, but Sofia Coppola, her first feature, The Virgin Suicide, I would say was pretty much a home run for first movies. But I agree, they, it, it's very hard to do and it probably helped. Their dad was Francis and uh, she probably had the money to to do what she needed to do. But um, other than that, I mean, I, I'm glad I watched this and um, I like the whole idea of the inner monologues and um, people trying to come to terms with who they are in this world and who the, why they're doing the war and why do we hate, why do we kill and why do we desire, why do we fear. And so, um, again, if he had more time and more money, he would have flushed it out. But I, I, I thought I think it's a really good start for a great career that's going to come ahead. That's great. Mark, I wanted to say yes. regarding Mindy's comments, the two things. Actually, even though it wasn't his first film, I think the comparison to Detour is pretty apt. Uh, it's a, a rough film. It probably is ultimately better executed because it wasn't his first film, but it was made for less money, I believe. Uh, I didn't say it was his first film. I said it was I, I know. Oh, okay. I didn't know if anybody else did. That's what I think. But he made the film for less than Fear and Desire. Supposedly it was seven thousand, but I think it might have been up to twenty or twenty-five. But you know, there, it just seems that that film is it has a little better structure and movement. Uh, plus, he's in a genre of sorts too in the uh, film noir genre that helps. The second thing was. Actually, about the same time Fear and Desire was made, Samuel Fuller did two movies uh, on the Korean War, uh, The Steel Helmet and Fixed Bayonets, you know, almost the same time. Now, they're specific to it. Uh, in fact, it was fairly uh, brave to make a movie about the Korean War in 1952, seeing as it wasn't over yet. Um 
but anyway, I thought the reference to um, to Fuller and Detour, I think, is apt. Thank you, Bob. And yeah, Bob is our uh, guide for this movie or whatever facilitator. Uh, just very quickly, or sensei. <laughs> I Stanley, I noticed you must have watched the colorized version. I, I guess I did. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah. there's a colorized version. I uh, okay. Yeah, on YouTube. Well, it, it's not native color, so let's okay. be clear. <laughs> you know, I should have yeah. gone. I should have gone straight to Criterion, but it popped up but, on Prime, and I said I just stayed with it. But well, just. Mindy, so Mindy's point about about okay. uh, see I didn't know about these other um it, it, that's interesting to know that there were other experimental filmmakers at this time because that's what it seems like that's what I was sensing but I didn't know who these other people were it sounded like he was part of maybe that group um or those younger filmmakers that were trying just, to like push the envelope yeah, differently just not part of the studio system when you weren't part of the studio system you had a lot you didn't have as much money but you had a lot more freedom Absolutely. Oh, and just so you know, um, there's a website called justwatch.com. So if you're looking for where to find a movie, uh, just one word, justwatch.com, and it'll list all the. So that's how I was able to know it was where it was. And it'll show whether it's rental or free, but at least it gives you some ideas of where you can find things. Thank you, Mindy. You're welcome. Okay, we're up to Nick. Hi, guys. So, uh, you know, it's really hard to unpack because there's so little really to work with. Um, I What jumped out for me, and I, I listened to the YouTube um, uh, interview with Stanley about him approaching uh, his first feature film and the fact that he thought that the script was rather pretentious um, and that he... Um, tried to make something out of what wasn't really there. Um, and so one of the things that I felt took away from the film was the narration. I think writers, even myself included, sometimes we try to get an idea out and you, you're better off showing it than narrating it. It depends on what your purpose of the narration is. Um, I also felt that I just didn't think there was anything at stake to really care about. And, um, you know, I think Stanley in the interview sp speaks of the fact that he was trying, he's not an actor. Uh, he's not an actor's, uh, he was never an actor and he's not an actor's director. So he was trying to find something out of nothing. And I think the budget, he said it was million, people were getting millions of dollars. And so he figured out he could get 20,000 to make this film. So I said to myself, Hmm, how, I was actually left with more questions than answers because I said, because you could see there's some genius in him early on, even through his mistakes. Uh, one of the scenes that stuck out to me was that he was trying to do a multiple cut murder scene without showing any gore because of the censorship rules, I'm sure, at the time as well. And he failed at doing that. But interestingly, and I've never seen it in any other movie except Psycho, where, where the great Hitchcock, of course, did did it correctly. So I'm wondering, did Alfred Hitchcock actually take that from Stanley? Or, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure. Um, it's, it just it left me with more questions. Then the other thing I was noticed that I noticed was that 
there was the theme of the hostage. And of course, that was played by his, his ex-wife, who was quite attractive, by the way. I never really saw her uh, before um, in any movie, of course. Um, and it reminded me, I mean, so, so he's trying to give a theme of, of uh, I, I guess it was some type of sexual repression. I mean, these guys are out and they find this woman and they're going to, you know, tie her up to a tree. And, and, and then they, and he's, I think he's trying to show that he was going mad. And you see that as a complete theme many years later, which I think is one of the most underrated films uh, ever, ever made uh, for war. And that was Casualties of War with Michael J. Fox. So I'm, I was wondering, you know, if, if, if you're a writer and you're looking towards the past, even for films that didn't work, might you pick up themes to, to expand upon and, and make good? So that's another thing and um uh there was also a really cool shot when i forgot the, the gentleman's name one of the soldiers died and he hits the he hits the the step with his head and you don't really see that so you see that that stanley's trying to develop his artistic sensibilities albedi's failing he's 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 trying and certain things look you know i mean i would give him a shot as my point with a higher budget after seeing that work because I would say, well, he didn't write it, but he certainly can he certainly can expose a picture well. And he certainly has an idea of what he's doing. Let's see what he can do with a better script. So I think that's the reason why he probably got better deals besides his business acumen, which we all know about. Um and and develop a career because a lot you know, in, in today's day and age, I don't know if someone makes a film at twenty thousand dollars and gets to make another film when it's that you know, poorly done in, in the grand scheme of things. He didn't have as much competition. I would, I would assume I could be wrong and I'd like to be corrected if I am, but nowadays everybody has a camera. The budgets are quite low and they're still, they're making content, but they're not never getting to the next level with a, with a, with a better script by another writer, if they're just a director and a higher budget. So that's what stuck out to me. And, and finally with uh, Stanley said, about uh, a writer, a, a director coming out of the, out of the, you know, into the to batter's box and hitting a grand slam, uh, you know, it, it has been done very few times. I mean, Sam Mendes though was from the theater and he knew how to block just from, from working in, you know, uh, I think he did cabaret for TV um, in '93, um, and so he had a, an, a sense. So, you know, I think Stanley did a great job in making something out of nothing and learning his craft and still putting something together. So it shows that he had some type of what a great intellect we know, but some type of general sense of what should be done to make a film. And that's what I got from it. Oh, really good, Nick. Everybody's doing great. Uh, one correction, his ex-wife is in the film. She's one of the three women in the stream. She's the yeah. left. Oh, okay. Uh, that's it for corrections. Uh, okay. James Sherman, James Sherman. Well, um, let's see a few things. Uh, first of all, Robert, Robert and Mindy took, took my Sam Fuller stuff. So that was it. But I did have one thing to say on the Sam Fuller thing. And it kind of glides into something Stanley was saying was, um, the, uh, yeah, the, okay. When Sam Fuller's films came out, the intelligentsia was, somewhat somewhat 
um, 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 dismissal, dismissive of his of his works. Okay, because they saw him sort of as a Hollywood hack, and uh, you know he's making sort of pedestrian films. And I I think that there was an element because, like I said, I mean it's like Steel Helmet, which I think I think uh, uh, Robert you were mentioning, and I think that's probably the most significant influence on on Fear and Desire was Steel Helmet. I mean you just look at the exterior scenes where actually shot interiors, but the thing is it's like the whole the whole mise en scene is definitely what Kubrick was trying to do. I think Kubrick was going to attempt to make an intellectual version of Sam, of Sam Fuller to a certain extent because and he did didn't work. Um it just it was a, he did not have the experience of Sam Fuller as a filmmaker at that time. Uh we'd mentioned that I think Mark McKinnon mentioned that it was like his, his a student film and it's definitely his student film and since all of us who've ever made first student films uh we've burned those. So Stanley Kubrick tried to burn his and that seemed to, to never work. Um, but I, I, interesting aspect, though, is that for all of its flaws and oh, my God, it has flaws like there's no tomorrow. Right. I mean, it's like I think Mark McKinnon touched upon that. A couple of other people touched upon that is that, you know, it's like, my God, when we see he, what what he just did, I think, in his next film, which was uh, The Killer's Kiss, which was much more, much better, more accomplished. OK, so it really does show that Stanley Kubrick learned a lot from Fair Desire, that he learned that the whole experience was absolutely necessary. And everybody, I think has has a belief i think pretty much sees that that idea that it just you know it's like you saw what he learned from killer's kiss and then of course from the killing which i think is 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 just a quantum leap above fear and desire i mean that's like that's like saying suddenly you know he's playing he's playing little league okay with fear and desire and suddenly he's in the major leagues batting 300 okay when he made the killing because i mean it's just the killing is just a great great film right and and it's like so you see what he learned, okay? The things that that that, that Mindy, you mentioned the whole sequence about yeah, the plan was 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 that he was that 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 Frank Silvera Silvera's characters uh, Mac, right? Uh, uh, Bob Robert, yeah, Mac, yeah, Mac. Mac's thing was he was to, he was sort of to 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 uh, uh, distract, right? Okay, the 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 the. Uh, um, um, the beach house in La Jolla, right where the generals were. Okay, and um, and uh, and and basically, you know, and and, and basically, so that that uh, the the officer and the other guy, okay, could get onto the plane and escape. Okay, and then, but of course, you know, it's like it's like they pause after Frank Silver sort of shoots at everybody, then gets shot, right? Okay, then they pause and they go and kill the general and his 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 officer, basically the two same characters, right? Or the suits two, two, two same actors, right? And um, um, it was interesting to me that yeah, I, that kind of was really. That was a mistake. That was just I. I think that they didn't think that thing through, and uh, that was one of the flaws. But some of the things that I really liked in the movie, okay, was first of all, it's an important artifact in film history, in the sense that this is Stanley Kubrick's first film. We do see things, even images and shots, okay, that he was going the intercutting he was attempting to do, which he would go on and do much more brilliantly in his career, obviously, and learn better on that. But the intercutting and the the close okay and like you said the kubrick stare which was by um i can't remember the actress who played uh she's just his girl in the in the credits it's interesting everybody has titles but she's girl or woman in credits and one of the things and i did like the attempt 
It didn't work, but I did like the attempt with the creepy stuff with Paul Mazursky and the assault and the sexual assault sequence. Okay. I really think that that was like something he would refine crazy. It was the first time Stanley Cooper tried to express crazy in one of his films. And obviously it's his first film and, and it didn't necessarily work, but I really, really loved the attempt that he was trying to do, that he was trying to do something different, that he was trying to do something in, in a much more interesting way. And just the very creepy way by which Paul Mazursky's character was done. Okay. And I just, I, I, I just thought I, again, I don't know if it worked completely. I probably, it didn't work completely, but I think it really, really, you know, I, I, I love the attempt. And the thing is it showed that this was a guy who was attempting to reach for more than, than, than he was capable of doing in 1952, right. That he was better able to, I think the, the psychological aspect of his films was better. Obviously he became master at that. Right. Okay. But so anyway, I, I did like the film for the, for the certain things that, you know, that did work, that at least affected me. And I saw what he was going to do going going forward. One last little bit interesting trivia was in the movie uh, as 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 Frank Silvera Mack is talking to the officer. Here I am. I'm 34 years old. I've never done anything important. Nothing. When this is over, I'll fix radios and washing machines, and they'll say, good boy, Mac, that's all. And what's interesting is poor Frank Salvera died trying to fix his garbage disposal, and he got electrocuted. He was in 1970, right? Okay, because and I was like going, "Oh wow, <laughs> what a precursor!" You know, a synchronicity of some sort. So I just that's just a trivial thing, okay? But James, I, why would you ever know that? <laughs> Incredible! I, Why would you know that? Just because you probably read IMDb. That's what you find out in I IMDb. Did not, I, I actually I love that not, stuff. I actually did not. Okay, this comes. I'll tell you the story. It sounds like he had a fan club. You were James like a stalker. Golden. James Goldner. James Goldner was my prof- uh, my my film professor at San Francisco State. Okay, he was a guy who was he's, he's an excellent documentarist. He was an excellent professor. Okay, he was just an absolutely brilliant professor. He knew Kubrick back in those days, back in the seventies. He was a kid at UCLA, right? Okay, and the thing is, it's like he knew Stanley Kubrick. He knew Paul Mazursky. He knew uh, um, 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 uh, uh, who was it? Um, um, Backler? Uh, Joe, Joe Turkle. I'm sorry, Joe Turkle. He knew uh, 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 Toba, Kubrick's wife and stuff like that. So there was all this this this, this group that he hung out with, right? And so basically he was like, and he knew Frank Silvera. They were friends. They were friends, okay? And so it was like when in film school, he showed us this first time I saw it, okay? And it was on a crappy version, okay? But he showed us a videotape of Fear and Desire. And so he said, my, Frank, my friend Frank Silvera passed away because it was like, and then when I, but I didn't put the connection until I saw the movie, Mark. And then I said, yeah, I fix radios and washing machines. And I go, oh my God, that's what's going to kill him, right? You know, so that's how I know that stuff. Okay. And my brain just is neurodivergent works that way. Okay. You know, so anyway, but it was, I just thought I'd throw that in for a little bit of trivia, but I just want to, just want to mention was, is, is, is that how important this film is. Okay. I totally understand why Stanley Kubrick wanted no one to see this. Okay. Cause this man made gigantic works of art, some of the greatest works of art that humans ever created, right? And he's got this lousy student film, okay, that, you know, so I could see why he would want, this is the reason why I don't show people my student films, 
I totally understand that. So anyway, but like I said, Mark, I'd like to, to add, and uh, Mark's got his hand up here, so maybe he can uh, have a question here. But um, yeah, we're getting a lot of really good material on a film that really, you know, it's the, it, it's it's just not that good a film, okay? But I don't think it's a horrible film or a lousy film. It's a great artifact to to see the beginning. You know, it's like sort of hearing, sort of maybe seeing Picasso's first paintings, you know, something like that something like that. So that's my, my, my take on, on uh, Excellent, James and an amazing story. I'm so glad that came out. Awesome. Uh, Mark, do you have a quick observation before we go on to Bob? Yes. Just to turn it quickly back to Sam Fuller and Kubrick for a second. We want to compare war movies or war themed movies. Sam Fuller was the master at it because he was a world war II combat veteran. So if there's anybody ever in a movie directed a movie who knew how to shoot a movie sequence with a, a war movie sequence. Absolutely. Sam Fuller. Absolutely. Yeah, Big, yeah. Red, Big Red One is one of the greatest uh, horror, uh, war films ever made. Brilliant. Absolutely. So is Merrill's Marauders. Yeah, Merrill's Marauders. So Steel is, Helmet. Is, Steel Helmet. That's a, that's a great movie because he did it with no money and he still did rock your ass yeah. combat sequences in that. Yeah. 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 Anyway. And the other thing I'll say is that I think Nicholas, Nicholas touched upon it that I didn't mention earlier on was uh, one of the themes that I think very strongly comes through very early on. It's not really explored, but it's sort of like put out there is the thing that Kubrick was always exploring later on. And that's the concept of, of duality, right. dual, dual behavior at the same time, even the, the trick that he does where he, I mean, I think he was both trying to save money on his cast, obviously, but also make a statement about, you know, sort of existential because he's got those characters that are doubled up. And it's a little confusing, but it also serves a very strong thematic purpose that's reflected later on in Kubrick's work about duality. And Do you think it was duality and not just totally budget-driven? Because I really thought it was budget-driven. <laughs> I agree with Brian. Yeah. <laughs> could be, could be. I'm going for duality. Now, that, that said, you know, the magic does happen in the editing room, and he always said that. So maybe there's truth to that. Not in this case, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Not that. Nothing in the editing save. He got really, really good at editing after this. I mean, really, really good. So, you know, yeah. Anyway, sorry, Mark. Mark, let's. Uh, who's next? Bob is next. Bob, pretend you're not the moderator. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll mention a few things. Uh, go, uh, we'll, we'll start right up with the duality. I'm totally in on the duality. Uh, he's already done this in with the twins in the day of the fight. Um, yeah. And it's something he's pursued throughout his films. I mean, it comes up all the time. The doppelganger, double, what have you. Uh, but I think it also fits into the theme of uh, when the opening narrative about the thing taking place in the mind. And, it, and it, I had done a, a presentation earlier about which I called Kubrick's Interior War. And it pretty much stemmed from watching this film and especially that scene and seeing how in his war films, it seems as if the the side we're watching, the French, uh, the Americans, seem to be killing themselves or when it comes to execution 
or estimating how many men will die when they're attacking the German, the anthill. Uh, you know, in fact, we see very little of the enemy in his films. But we we get soldiers who are being killed by their own people. Doctor Strangelove, uh, they have you know they're helping the Russians knock out the planes uh, that are that are attacking. You know, so this theme continues, and I think it works well. And it may you know it may have satisfied a budget issue, but I think it works. And the connecting tissue is the dog. When they meet the dog in one of the opening sequences, and then later the dogs in the uh, the, the uh, cabin with the general, so or the house. The other thing is one thing uh, regarding Sydney's Sydney's breakdown actually begins when they kill the soldiers eating the food. I mean, he's a little strung out maybe before or anxious, but that is his snapping point. So by the time you know, probably the real issue is why'd they leave him to guard the girl? He was obviously not. I, I think that's, you know, that's where Mark saw the absurdity of that scene and such. And I think there's something to be said for that. But I have to admit, that's this. I love that scene. I, I, it's so off the wall. Stuff he's talking about, it's almost surreal. Oh, the the it, assault scene, Bob. The I'm sorry. Well, no. When Sydney's talk about the magician, I mean, he's just going right. on and on. Right, right. It, it's almost humorous in a way. Yeah, maybe unintentionally. Um, and he also has the Kubrick stare at some point there, um, while he's uh, looking her as she's tied up. And also, when he brings his hands up to her, it's a lot like Alex when he's in front of the crowd. And he's he has his hands right near her breast, and he can't touch them. Sydney does a similar thing. In fact, I think he's on his knees uh, when he's doing this. So, so that echoed a future uh, scene. And one thing I never didn't worry about. I'm not worried about whether it's a great film or not. Or you know, I mean, he made it. You know. Okay, I, I don't think we should feel it's like an abscess on our on our appreciation of Kubrick. I mean, he, you know, he did what he he did what he did, um, and he did. I mean, he had. I think he had an issue in Killer's Kiss also regarding the soundtrack, if I'm not mistaken. I, well, maybe we'll find out next week when we uh, deal with this. But I think he had an issue there with the production. Or the final thing with Jake. Um, let's see. I, I felt the scene where uh, Max on the river, as much as it seemed absurd, him going down the river on the raft. I have to admit that I, I, I'm captivated by the river shots and 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 oh, going back to the interior dialogue. I mean, this movie totally reminded me of Thin red line and how the approach there is there's i mean that's an interior monologue uh festival um you know so and and kubrick used narration before as well uh he began pass the glory with it he began strange love with it and he has a whole movie of it for barry linden you know i guess if you don't like narration you skip barry linden um 
So, I mean, the film didn't bother me in terms of its, uh, you know, failures or whatnot or potential failures. Uh, To me, it was just seeing how these, I mean, he definitely, I was looking at some of the films. Yeah, I didn't see the list I gave you of films, uh, first films. Um, I don't think there were any home runs, um, so to speak. But this film, when it came out, made some money now it didn't like i think he recouped some of the money when it came out and the other thing about his suppressing the film i think he suppressed this long before he was an established filmmaker i i think he began to suppress this film not far after making this film so he wasn't you know oh i've made barry linden i can't let people see sphere and desire i mean i think this was early on and you know, there's a lot of speculation as why he did it. It, it's definitely approach he never really uses again. I would say that's what's really different. And you know, maybe it just hit a wrong note for him. Is you know, it, it embarrassed him for whatever reason. I guess he's entitled to that. So I'll I'll stand by my defense of Sydney. I guess. <laughs> All right, really good, Bob. A quick comment from Stanley before we move on. Two quick points here. Uh, Everybody's got to start somewhere. We know where Stanley ended up. The scene of Mac on the river, didn't he verbalize or didn't he internalize that he was willing to give up? We know that he served as a distraction for the other two to get away on the plane. But didn't Mac look at himself as giving up his life to take out the German general. Uh, yeah. so it sort of goes to his obsession about the general as well. Exactly. Uh, he, but he was willing to give up his life for it. So on one hand, that speaks to, call it the good nature of man, as opposed to the other nature of man. Thank you, Stanley. Uh, I'm just interested in how differently people, you know, the different things that people notice and pro- how they process things, which is coming across really well in our in our individual statements. So, Kathy, what are your thoughts? Well, this was the second time I saw it. And um, I think when you go in with low expectations, like my memory of watching it the first time was, can we just get through this? But actually, <laughs> with that low an expectation, I found some things interesting about it. Um, I thought the kind of overlapping internal dialogue toward the beginning when they're walking up the hill and each one has separate thoughts about what's going on here and, you know, separate feelings. I found that interesting. And I found a few touching moments. Like uh, Stanley was just, I I think it was Stanley's comment about... um, a max on the raft, right? Be um, anyway, as Max is on the raft, is approaching, coming to the point where he's going to have to start taking action. He thinks something like, "No more Sundays, no more anything." It's like he's. It's this sudden uh, transformation from "I'm ready to die" because life is not going to be worth anything anyway. No more Sundays. No more a thousand things. I'm a little scared, though. Just a little. 
like kissing my great-grandmother when she was dying. And there were moments like that where I sort of thought, you know, I'd like to hear a little more about that, you know, as opposed to, oh, God, can we get this over with? Uh, Also, I saw a colorized version. And at a couple points, I sort of forgot that. And I was thinking, um, wow, that's really an interesting background, an interesting palette to pick for this kind of scene, you know. And then there'd be the oh wait moment, <laughs> like this is this is colorized and it's not even well colorized, right? So I I'm not dying to see it a third time, particularly, but I found it a bit more interesting the second time around. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, sure. Uh, David, your thoughts. Hello. I think it's the second time I've seen it. I might have seen it three times. Uh, This time around, I was interested in the um, character's uh, dialogue within their own minds. And um, I thought that, you know, there's a lot uh, to discover in in how those are written and um, how uh, Stanley was um, maybe seeing his characters and and uh, his own intellectual approach to it. Um, again, the editing I thought was um, interesting because you start to see some of the um, things that he wanted to to express. And uh, some of them are awkward, um, but those are the beginnings. Um, I did have trouble with some of the dialogue, trying to distinguish between the different characters uh, and their thought patterns. But um, it seemed like um, this is because of the first time of um, making a film. Um, I I did notice uh, there was quite a bit of difference between the way the soldiers moved in this film and how they move in Full Metal Jacket is just (laughs) quite a difference. Um, And also, Stanley said something about the the music. Um, It seemed like the music was was done in certain ways that did add to the film. And um, the composer or whoever wrote the, the music or unorchestrated it seemed to be mature um, to have a good grasp on, on what they were doing with the music. And it seemed like uh, Stanley chose this kind of music uh, um, up to and used that kind of music for the for the next two films. And um, so I thought that that was interesting in, in itself. Um, I did notice a, a bit of a Twilight Zone connection. Um, I um, just got the uh, Blu-ray collection. There's 156 episodes. And uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, Rod Serling wrote 92 of the shows. So it... it but there, I I've always wondered if there was kind of a connection between um, Rod Serling and uh, Stanley. Um, but uh, in one of the interviews, uh, Rod Serling does compliment um, 
uh, Stanley on on uh, how um, the opening of 2001 was portrayed by the, by the apes without any dialogue. So, but um, I I would watch this film again just because of the certain points and some of the points that that others have brought out in in today's discussion. So I'll just leave it there. That's great, David and Bob. I imagine you have a comment on the music. Well, you mentioned that the man who composed it, Gerald Fried, who also uh, I was just looking up his. Uh, he has a long list of credits, like, but his first four are with Kubrick, and he did Day of the Fight, then Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, and The Killing. And I, I know The Killing. I felt was is he really is. I, at a top form there, I think, early in his career. But um, Bob, didn't he go to high school with Gerald? And then there were like three people that like worked on these first films that I thought were all part of his high school, his high school class. But maybe I'm wrong. Now, uh, let's see here. I thought he went to high school with Gerald, uh, Gerald in the Bronx. Well, he's from and, he's born in Manhattan. Mm. Yeah, they were all buddies very early on. Oh, maybe it was it's the Washington Square connection. No, it's the Bronx. Mm. That's what I thought. Uh anything else, Bob, before we no, that's it, that's it. I just wanted to mention Gerald. Give him his props. Thank you. He did do Paths of Glory also. Carol did. James, you are next. And first, uh Forgive me, uh, I'm French and I don't uh, use to speak English uh, every day. So forgive me if I, if I make mistakes or if my I use basic words to uh, express my ideas uh, and my feelings. Please forgive me. Uh, but uh, I love uh, I love this movie. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't want I don't want to take too, too much time. <laughs> the time is passing. There's a lot of things to say, like um, maybe one, one last thing. Uh, nobody nobody uh, thinks about um, the uh, opening credits and uh, the engraving or the drawing uh, be, be behind. Uh, well, like uh, paintings, in fact. And you need to play, to interact with the movie, to, um, like, um, you turn... You turn, uh, you turn your screen, and uh, it's a painting of a, of a face uh, to uh, make um, to mimic um, the the body uh, on the ground, uh, Paul Mazowski or the woman. And in fact, uh, uh, it's a it's um, a painting of the woman in the opening credits. Hmm. Oh, James, I hadn't noticed that. I had not noticed that. Uh, also. Uh, it's a not, it's a good thing that Nicolas mentioned the connection between uh, uh, the shower scene in Psycho and uh, the, the the murder mercy murder the first uh, first attack scene uh, in Fear and Desire because if you really think about it it's clear that Alfred Hitchcock Sir Alfred Hitchcock hated the uh, this scene from Fear and Desire and in fact it's more dependent than that. Than that. Because um, behind the story of Psycho, I think uh, people like to use uh, easy and have people like to have easy understanding of a movie. But like you, when you see Psycho, 
the at the ending of the song with the psych psychiatrist. You need you need to to be uh, to feel to feel better after the the shock of the the cave, the scene of the cave with the the the, the skeleton of the mother, and uh, you have a, a rational explanation. But what if what if Norman Betts wasn't crazy or mad, but was possessed? Hmm. There's a there's a, the, a theme about the, uh, being possessed uh, in fear and desire because uh, Robert Bloch, who, who wrote the novel for Psycho, was a close friend to a uh, master Lovecraft, who are behind the story of uh, uh, um, the Call of Cthulhu and all the ideas of the ancient ones, uh, esoteric ideas. All that, all that stuff. Okay, so. Well, thank you, James. You're making some very interesting connections and also about the way Kubrick's mind works uh, that does connect eyes wide shut. So let me get my little. And oh, I was just going to say, I also want to say, James, don't be embarrassed about your English. You speak English better than some people in the United States. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> better, better than me. So, yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but it's difficult because uh, Stanley uh, uh, leads us to uh, complex territories uh, who, who gives you complex thoughts who are difficult to express with words. Because it's like he said, uh, the truth of a thing, it's not about the think of it, but to feel it. When you see the connection between the birthday of uh, the the birth of Stanley Kubrick and the death of Felix Schnitzler, you don't have to think about it; you have to feel it. That's what I want to say. Okay. I wish uh, Ian was here because he sees these kinds of connections as you do, James, and they're very Ooh. interesting. Uh, let me just give my observations. Uh, first of all, I did see this in the theater. And watching it on YouTube is not nearly as good. The strengths of the movie are the compositions, the cinematography, and the music. And that that part is so shrunken down on the computer. Uh, in the theater, there was I the ending scene was very emotional to me because of those elements. Things I noticed on this viewing. Uh, there seemed to be something about drawing with sticks in the dirt. Uh, there's that map in the beginning drawn by the captain. And then uh, uh, the Silvera character keeps drawing, pushing a stick into the dirt during the whole penultimate scene as some kind of quirk that he's having. Uh, I think it's only 16 minutes long, and yet... To me, I feel like he didn't have enough coverage for that 60 minutes, so he's forced to reuse some shots. He has uh, the, the girl he uses the same shot over several times, then he flips it over just, just to have stuff there. Uh, I did like for filming. I was watching his filming technique. When uh, they have... Again, Silvera. Is it Frank Silvera? When he Frank goes Silvera, out, yeah. yes. When he goes out on the road himself to see if it's clear, 
the fact that the camera stays behind and we see him go forward, that's like in Full Metal Jacket. I thought that was a nice technique. I was puzzled by the aspect ratio, which is almost square. I've never seen that aspect ratio in a Kubrick film. Uh, in Photoshop, it says it's five by seven. I also noticed vignetting uh, in some of the shots. So that's where you get a black circle around each of the four corners. And that happens when you've got the lens at the far end of its zoom, say. Uh, a lot of theme, a lot of the acting did make me uncomfortable and squirmy. And I thought Mazursky and Vincent D'Onofrio and Full Metal Jacket, it's like they go so far that it does make me squirm. It's uncomfortable to watch. Uh, so yes, with the reused shots, I felt like Kubrick did not have much time to prepare or he didn't think he needed to prepare. And then he had very limited time shooting. And so he didn't have that many shots to choose from when he was editing as, and I think he reacted against that in his later films. He always did multiple takes as someone was saying, not to find this moment of genius, but just to have a whole lot of choices on what to use in the editing process. So I think when he got back to this, this to edit, he realized he didn't give himself much leeway with what he did on scene. And uh, I thought, as we've brought out, there's a lot of themes that show up later in Kubrick. And he's not afraid to look ridiculous to go all the way out there. But uh, when he says you need to make it interesting, uh, that's a reason for many takes. He didn't have time to do that on this on this shoot. And when he says the director is an idea and taste machine, again, I don't feel like he had enough time to come up with some good ideas and the taste to choose what, what was best, or maybe he just didn't have the options. Uh, I didn't see any genius in this the way I do in his later films. So those were my thoughts. And Mark, you had a comment? Further to your point about sticks in the dirt, there's three three shots, or maybe at least two anyway, when they're having the uh, the lieutenant is digging in the dirt with his he's when he's leaning against the tree and talking to Frank Silvera, Max. He's he's facing kind of this way, and Silvera is over there to his right, but hidden away, his left hand has a stick that is digging in the dirt. There's a medium close up on it and it's never explored as to why he's doing that is it is it releasing tension is it some sort of work there's no context for it so there's that as well yes so that could be a theme but it's not explored it's not explained it's just the work it sticks out so to speak yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, yeah, yeah, Mark, I agree with you. There were a lot of, uh, I don't think he had a lot of coverage. And I just think he repeated a lot of things and just had to throw the kitchen sink, cause, which is kind of ironic because by the end of his career, he was doing a thousand takes. So this is kind of the yin and yang of the progression of a filmmaker. Because <laughs> well, the cut that I watched was 
rated at 106, almost 107 minutes, which is 67. Uh, mine was was almost an hour, like an hour one. So one that's hour what I that's what I want. I thought mine was 61, but again. yeah, I have one hour. The YouTube version I watched has one hour and six minutes and 50 seconds. So that's did you watch the color or the black and white? Black and white. Ah, uh, okay. So it's the director's cut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's you know, the only thing the only thing I would say here is and kids is is you know in in Kubrick feeling like embarrassed by this or I, I don't know his ego whatever wanting to burn it is that he would later go on to say that you know you young filmmakers should get a camera go out shoot do everything learn everything edit and that's what he was doing <laughs> and so it's almost like you know I would have. You know, you could take a spin either way, but I would have said that's what I was doing. I was doing exactly what I would preach to someone starting out today if he was still alive. Take a camera, go out and shoot. Um, Chris Nolan, Christopher Nolan preaches this um, from his early films. I mean, it's the only way to learn how to make a filmmaker and do all the different pieces of it. Um, so I, I find it other than, I guess, ego, perhaps for him to have had such a um, hostility toward it, knowing that it's essentially a student film or first work. Thanks, Brian. Let's, so we're running up against the clock, surprisingly, with this movie. Uh, but let's go back to Bob, because he did such a great job with the, uh, with the handout. The, all those things were great, Bob. Do you have some things you want to bring out to us? Well, one thing is... It's one. Of, it's a uh, probably one of the best pieces I've read about the film. It's in the Philosophy of Stanley Kubrick, uh, edited by Gerald Gerald Abrams, and it it's called uh, the Dialogue of Fear, uh, in Fear and Desire and Doctor Strangelove, and the basic approach is to look at uh, the first film as human beings alone. And in Dr. Strangelove, she looks at the collective and and how like we have like sort of not archetypes, but generalizations of people in Dr. Strangelove. Here, you know, we get the typical war film, get the, you know, different soldier types and such. Uh, I, I thought the interaction among the soldiers was pretty good. Uh, and it's gone into somewhat in this article. It's the first one in the book. And it, like I found the, like the constant, I would say tension between Mac and Lieutenant Corby was consistent throughout. Mac sort of, you know, felt that this guy wasn't being realistic or had his, you know, yeah mind in the clouds um and to some extent i mean that's his character he's sort of somewhat distant i mean the one the other character fletcher is is sort of doesn't have much to him uh but uh and he doesn't stand out compared to the other three but i found the interactions between mac and, and corby pretty inter interesting um like I said before, I'm not, you know, I'm not that worried about it being a failure or whatnot. Uh, I don't think I watch stuff caring 
about that. That is to say, I got to watch this because it's a great film. Or people tell me it's a great film. Well, no, I, if I want to see it, I'll see it or I'll need to see it. Um, you know, or I have confidence that it's going to be, there's going to be something there. And, and to me, this is a, you know, I think a little, uh, a primer into, or, or I say the incipient uh, Kubrick is being shown here. I mean, I think we named enough things where we see how they're developed later on. And, you know, I mean, it's part of his psyche. He may have, you know, the one that we've mentioned this before, where Corby says after the plane flies over, I think it's the second time the plane flies over and doesn't see them or the raft. Uh, he says, what are they doing up there? Read magazines? And here we have uh, Slim Pickens reading a magazine in the bomber. I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, obviously he didn't do the first line anticipating the later one, but it, and I guess this is part of the, you know, the, for, for a filmmaker or a writer, they can have these things in there. And it doesn't matter if you detect them or not. I don't think it's going to affect ultimately the meaning of the film to the viewer. Uh, it just becomes more satisfying when you discover these little things. Um, you know, and, you know, I don't think it, you know, the remark by Corby, you know, suddenly makes fear and desire, you know, a visionary film, you know, it just, but Oh, and the other, I'd say the one scene that leaves the biggest impression, I think it was mentioned when uh, when they kill the soldiers that are eating. I thought some of the shots there were where they're stabbing him, and what he shows is them, I think one guy has an orange, and we see as the guy is dying, he, the orange is crushed in his hand. I mean, that that is, I think, incipient genius. I'll put it that way. I, I mean, I think that really works. It, it, it really is effective in terms of, and we you talked before about how in the film he tries to do things without showing, like I think the general who who hits the floor, uh, the porch floor, and some of the, you know, and and the mention of Psycho and people being stabbed, but we don't see them being stabbed. Uh, but I think the use of the orange and, and the food and the fact that they're eating the food afterwards. That left probably a fairly big impression on me, this this viewing. Um, my only question, this is really for Bob, um, the screenplay was with Howard Sackler. Um, how much of this was Howard Sackler and, and or Kubrick? Because um, they both went on to have Hollywood careers, obviously. Um, I don't know Sackler's and, work that much okay. to pinpoint... Oh, this is Sacklerish versus. Yeah, that's my. That's kind of my. I think my question. we would be better. I think the group would probably. I think senses the Kubrick touch. Uh, again, did Sackler write uh, the screenplay for Killer's Kiss as well? I have not gotten to it. I haven't gotten that far. According to one of the articles, Bob. Yeah, he worked with him on Killer's Kiss. So he was part of this like little well that there's where posse, we posse of people early on with him. <laughs> well, there I think if he did killers wrote killers kiss, 
that would give us a some way to compare mm. uh, what it would seem to me. I don't know if it went through it. I'd say, yeah, that's let's see. I mean, whatever Sydney's saying is probably Sackler. I think Sackler just, you know, was in free form there. Uh, oh, imagery, no doubt, is Kubrick. I was just curious yeah. at this point, you know, how much Sackler might have been. And it, you know, it's interesting that these guys were kind of a. a I said posse before that they were this group that kind of came out. I don't. I assume Sackler came out of New York, but I don't know. Um, that came out, and they were probably all similar ages, um, trying to embark on their careers. I wouldn't be shocked if the interior monologues were Sackler. Mm. But all right, uh, Mark, and then Stanley. Yeah, something that uh, Bob mentioned: the, the shot of the food, the plates of the food. That's the most dynamic editing in the entire piece. And that kind of exclamatory cut on action editing, I can think of two other times he ever did that. One is the when the Moon Watcher discovers the bone and you get the, those quick shots of the falling animal and the, the quick shots of him smashing the bone onto the skull. That's that's similar editing to Fear and Desire. And the other time he ever did that that I can recall right now is in... Uh, in uh, a clockwork orange during the opening fight sequence he cuts on action and it's very quick and dynamic so it's he goes along slowly and slowly and slowly and then there's this explosion of action and then it returns to a more sedate pace so he's done that at least two other times in in later movies and I, and I think that it was, in this case, it was deliberate rather than him not having enough coverage. He cut it together like that for a reason. Mm. Good point. Awesome, Mark. You did a great job today. Get yeah, everybody thank together. you, Mark. Fantastic. It was and, yeah, it was, and Mindy, welcome. Um, yeah, Mindy and yeah. James. It's, wow. it's, it, it, honestly, it's, it, it is, it's nice to have a female perspective on oh. Kubrick film. Just because his films were just so male oriented for the most exactly. part. Actually, ironically, it's kind of ironically till the very end of his career where yeah. there was a significant role for an, you know, uh, a female actress, but well, Mindy, uh, putting, putting aside, putting aside Lolita. Um, <laughs> oh God, that's very kind of, kind of, <laughs> yeah. That's that in itself has issues. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to my perspective. I appreciate it. I don't know. Please, please come back. Please come back. Yeah. And James, okay. James, 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 please come back, sir. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank everybody. you. Everybody. See you next time. Bye. 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 Our very special thanks to Mark Lentz and James Robert Sherman and all at the SCAS Academy. Brian Kahn, Mark McKennan, Stan Dorfman, Mindy, Bob Castle, Nick LaMatina, Kathy Metzger, David Sukavati, and James Phillip. We will be exploring Kubrick's second feature film, Killer's Kiss, from 1955, in an upcoming episode of Kubrick's Universe as part of our Tecatria Kubrick season, conducted by Mark Lentz and the SCAS Academy. 
Okay, and check out our two Facebook groups, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. We also have two great YouTube channels, again, for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. If you get a chance, head over to patreon.com, search Kubrick's Universe. You can offer your support for our podcast so we can keep bringing it to you for as little as one English pound or one U.S. doll hair per month. On behalf of Stephen Rigg and myself, your humble narrator, Jason Furlong, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. It's Kubrick's Universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.